Thank you. Hi, guys. Oh, man, how are we doing out there? Good? I can tell I love a nice rowdy crowd. That's good. I appreciate that a lot. Yes, you probably, if you've been around for any amount of time, you probably do recognize me. I, we did this thing called the Great American Sing-Along. Our two churches partnered together to do this thing. And back then, I think this was not here. It was very different. And uh, I was singing like the theme song to Hercules or maybe Beauty and the Beast. It was like one of those. And I was like making a total fool of myself on the stage in the name of Jesus and your children, just so we're clear. Um, and so I just want to assure you today that it's going to be mostly that again, but it's probably going to have like less beauty in the beast. I mean, no promises. We'll see what the Lord does. Okay. Let's just, let's not, let's not count it out. I hope you guys are having a Merry Christmas because it's here. I didn't know if you got the memo, but it is the 11th of December and Christmas is here. Okay. And I know that some of you feel that. Do you feel some of that tension that comes with this time of year? Every time we get to this, the point of the year and you're like, how many days left? Do I need to go to Park and stand in the world's longest line? Yes, probably, because it's coming, and we have all of these things on our to-do list. Probably right after you're done here, you have a list of things to do. And as one who has worked in the church my entire adult life, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? You look like honest people, so this stays between us and everybody watching. All right, here's the deal. <clears throat> let you in on a secret. This is not my most favorite time of year. <laughs> Like, not even kind of. It, it's actually like the opposite of that. It's like super, super stressful for me in every way. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why it is. Because Christmas does not start when you work at a church. It doesn't start after Thanksgiving like it does for the rest of you. Oh, no, no. Christmas starts in July, okay? It starts in July when you're wearing flip-flops and shorts, and it's 100 degrees, and you're singing about, oh, come, oh, come, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your stage, and what colors go well, and how many candles you need for the service so you don't burn the church down. Like that's what is going on in July, okay? That's when it happens. So by the time you get to Christmas, you're all fall a lot out, okay? It's just, you're done. You're done. You've sung the songs, you did the dance, you did, you did it. And you're like, oh, let this, let this be done, please. It's just a lot, okay? Now, I will tell you this. I am married. I have a wonderful, amazing wife. She's so great. I am thankful every day that she is born. But she happens to share a birthday with Jesus. So on top of everything else, I'm also putting a birthday party together, and I can't find anyone to watch my son. Rude. You know what I'm saying? It's just a lot, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And if that wasn't enough, on top of all of that stuff that you have to manage, then you have people coming into town and gifts you have to buy and parties and celebrations and all the things. And you're trying to be just the world's best party planner as everybody descends on your life. And then you have to clean up the mess after they all leave and go home. And then to add on top of that, we all live in this world. We see the things that are going on in our world, in our society. It's hard to find a reason to be thankful for the season. So when someone asked me to preach on hope today, I went, oh, oh, oh you. Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. It's a good lesson for me. It's a good life lesson. <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I have a hard time finding things to always be hopeful in this time of year. And not just because it's busy, but for all the other things that are unspoken. I feel like for the last couple of years, I have been saying to people at our church, hey, 2020 was a hard year. Don't worry, it'll get better. 2021 is a hard year. It'll get better. 2022, hard year. It'll get better. I'm tired of telling, I don't actually know anymore. 2022 was a hard year. We'll see. Like I don't, I feel like I'm lying to them. I don't know that it's going to get better. I'm tired of telling people it's going to get better because it just seems to get worse. 
just feels like every year I'm like, wow, is there anything to be thankful for? Did anything good really, really come out of this year? And my list just dwindles and gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and I have a hard time trying to find or even manufacture hope. But then I work for Jesus. I'm supposed to be a good Christian who checks off all the marks on the list. I'm supposed to be a person who lives in a state of perpetual hope because that's what we've been taught to do, right? So what do you do when there's no hope to be found? What do you do when life feels completely void of hope? Real hope, okay? Like, not the kind of thing that, you you know, when people go onto Facebook, like in November, and they do the gratitude challenge, and they're like, I saw a deer today, hashtag blessed. Not that kind of thing. I'm talking about the kind of hope that is organic, that's natural, that comes from a very real, authentic place. What do you do when that's just not happening for you, but you know somewhere in your mind, maybe even your heart, that it's supposed to. That's what I want to talk about today when we talk about hope. I want to talk about hopelessness. (laughs) Yes, we're going to talk about hopelessness, because I think we have to be on the same page about what we're talking about before we can actually get to the whole hope part, and why hope is so important, and why hope is so important for people who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We have to be on the same page, so grab a hand of the person next to you. We're going to get through the hopelessness conversation together, because it's not very merry and bright and cheery, but we have to talk about it, because it's so important. The opposite of hope, when I think about two words that I could describe being the opposite of hope. It's these, discouragement and desperation. Discouragement and desperation. Anybody experience that at any point in 2022? Yeah? Discouragement and desperation. And let me tell you something about those words. They spread a lot faster than hope ever will. Discouragement and desperation are really easy to share, really easy. And it has the potential to destroy entire communities. And it is not as obvious as maybe you think it is. Maybe you think, I'm a very positive person. I don't know what you're talking about. Teehee, it's not as easy as to like avoid. It actually happens in subtlety. It starts with things like a conversation. You're you know, walking your dog or whatever, and you see your neighbor, and you say, hi, how are you? And they go, it's been a hard one. Um, My dog died, and I lost my job, and I'm not sure what the future holds. And did you see what happened in the news today? And in five minutes, you were like, oh, Merry Christmas. I mean, it just has that vibe. That fast. It's that easy to spread discouragement and despair. It doesn't take much. Then you go home, and you turn on the news, and you hear things like unprecedented, the worst it has ever been. And so, well, if TV says it is, it must be true. Like, you just assume that's it. You're absolutely right. There is nothing to hope for. That's how it feels all the time. What you come to learn about things like discouragement and desperation is that it has a lot more to do with how you feel about a thing and how that feeling manages your perception than it does actual logic and thought. It's not that things are exactly the worst, it's that that's how it's perceived in you. It has more of a heart thing to do than a head thing. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, misery loves company. Has anybody ever heard that idea? It's this idea that, hey, if you can't say something nice, come hang out with me. I'm a good hang. You know what I'm saying? That's the idea. Misery loves company because you know what we love to do as human beings? We love to get a bunch of miserable people around in a big old circle, just a big old life group of miserable people and share and lament with each other about how miserable and how how awful our lives are. And we just do that. And isn't that great? And then our conclusion is in our little life group of miserable people that the world is perpetually awful and there's nothing you can do to change it. So why bother? Sound familiar? 
Sound like something maybe you've experienced? I want to try something here real quick. I want you to think about the last horrible thing that happened in our world. Shouldn't take you very long. I want you to think to yourself how you responded in that moment. Were you just as crushed about that thing like it happened, just happened, or the first time that it happened? Or did you throw your hands in the air and say, well, that's just what it is now. <laughs> that's just the world we live in. That's it. Be honest. How did you respond? I know I responded in the latter. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of responding in the latter. And as a Christian, I know that I'm supposed to be a different kind of person, a changed person. I'm supposed to be living in the world, but not of the world. But I find myself agreeing with the world more than I agree with Christ when this world is an awful, miserable place and there's nothing to hope for. And I can't help it. I can't help it. I know I'm not supposed to feel that way. I just do. I just do. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot in this world, like a lot in this world to be discouraged by. And I promise you, this is not going to be like a buck up Christian sermon. I would never preach that sermon for you. This is not what this is. I want us to tell the truth. I want us to tell the truth with ourselves and with each other about all that's going on, the hopelessness that has this tendency to permeate so that we can get to this thing that the Bible keeps telling us we're supposed to experience this hope, this amazing hope. And how do we get there? And I think it starts by talking about this hopelessness. So what I want to do today to start is actually give you just a little bit of a history lesson before we get to scripture, which we will get to, because I think Understanding history a little bit, oftentimes we believe that like whatever's happening right now in our moment, in this generation, in this year, it's the worst it's ever been, right? Like no one has ever been as hopeless as we are right now in this moment. It's kind of like when your kid, if you have kids, you know, they use two words that you really encourage them not to use, always and never. It's like their favorite words, and they go like, oh, mom, you always side with that sibling over me, or oh, you never let me play with the knives. I mean, it's like one of those, and it's like, always, like always, never, like those are extreme, right? Like the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, right? Like sometimes you get a knife. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that's not always or never, but it's kind of the go-to when you're young and you're trying to figure out, you know, trying to make your case as a young human. But we have a tendency as grown children to kind of react in that same way when we're in the thick of it and when life seems completely hopelessness. And this is kind of the proof of that. What I want to tell you today is basically, you're not special. And what I mean by that is, humans have been a hot mess for as long as humans have been humans. Like, it's, it, there's nothing new under the sun. It's always been like this. Here's the proof of that. When you look at our Bible, you have what we call two Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. But nobody ever talks about the space between both of those things. At the very end of the Old Testament, it's a book called Malachi. And at the very beginning of the New Testament, is a book called Matthew, which we're going to be in. Do you know what took place between those two Testaments? 400 years. 400 years between the last prophetic words of the Old Testament and the beginning of the story of Jesus' birth in the New Testament. That means for 400 years, God said nothing to no one for 400 years. I want you to visualize with me 400 years. Can you even grasp 400 years? First of all, you're all dead. That's the first thing, gone, dead. But not just you and your family, 
and your children, and their children, and their children, okay? It's everyone. You're all dead. They're all dead. Everyone you've ever loved. I want you to visualize being a Jewish person back in the time of the Old Testament. And you have been told by prophets that God has a plan. He's got a plan, okay? He's going to rescue you. He's going to rescue your people. He's going to send a savior, okay? A Messiah, a a king. And this king is going to sit on David's throne. And you're like, oh, yes, thank you. That's great. Maybe that news alone was enough to just get you through the day that day. But then the days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years, and nothing. There's nothing. It's just hardship day after day, heartache over and over, disappointment. And not just for you, but everyone you've ever known, everyone you've ever loved. And then you die. And you'll never see that promise fulfilled. It never comes to fruition. Where's the hope in that? That's what was going on in the time when all of this happened. And it didn't just, not bad just for you, but it didn't fare any better for your people, God's people. It was awful. 400 years and God said nothing. And in that time, Israel came under rules of all these different leaders. First, it was the Persian Empire. And then eventually it became the Roman Empire. During that time, Israel had no king on the throne. The land they once called home was completely overruled with foreign nations. They had no identity as a people group. Just nothing, just hardship after hardship. Every year seemed a little bit worse than the last. That sounds like hopelessness to me. At some point, wouldn't you just throw your hands up in the air and be like, well, I guess that's how it is now. I guess God isn't really good on his promises like he said he would. I guess this is it, and this is all I can ever hope for. I know I would. Then, just on some random day 400 years later, All of a sudden, things start turning around. Something really interesting takes place. The Persian Empire is gone. It's replaced with the Roman Empire, which is now the chief empire of the land. The the nation of Israel is still living in what was known as Palestine at the time, which is now modern-day Israel. But there is still no true king on the throne. But there is a king that Rome has put on the throne, and he's an awful human being, so he can't possibly be the man that the prophets were talking about. That man's name is Herod, and he's awful, and we'll get to him in a minute. And then on one random not-so-interesting day in a town of Galilee, or a town of Nazareth in Galilee, there's a carpenter who just so happens to be in the house and line of King David, and his name is Joseph, and he's engaged to be married to a woman named Mary. And just like that, a promise is fulfilled. Just like that. It wasn't a special day. There wasn't anything unique about it. It just happened. And then God moved on his promise. And that's where we're going to start our story today as we talk about hope. But I needed us to be in this place of desperation and hopelessness so you could feel how intense it was to go whole generations and not see God work and move. And maybe somewhere in the midst of this, we can find that hope. We're going to be in Matthew's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 and following. This is what it says in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. You've got these wise men, better known as magi, which is where we get our English word for magic, came from the east, like Persia, which is now like modern-day Iran, right? And these guys were astronomers and astrologers and mathematicians, and they were really into medicine, so they studied the stars, and everything had significance and met things. Now, the reason they even knew about this prophecy is because 
in the Persian Empire, they were over the Jews at the time. So, of course, they had their sacred texts like the Torah and their books of prophecy, and they read and studied them. So they were aware that somewhere in the Jewish text said that, that a king is supposed to rise and that God is going to provide someone who is going to be the king of the Jews. So that's the context for which they understand this already. They gave a lot of significance to studying the stars. So when a random star appears in the sky, for them, it wasn't an accident. It was divine intervention. That, oh, the God is doing something, and we should go in that direction and follow this star because it means something important. But the emphasis that I want you to have here in this passage is the word born. They go to Herod and they ask him, who is he who has been born the king of the Jews? This is their way of saying, that's not you. Okay? Who is the one (laughs) who's supposed to be here? Who's the one that has a legitimate claim to this throne? Not you, but who's the one? Now, uh, we're going to talk about Herod here in a minute, but let me just, you know, give you a little hint. He didn't take it well. (laughs) He didn't love that they came to say that. It's a little rude. It's like if someone came to your house and like, who actually lives here? Because I know it's not you. Like, that's the feeling. And so he doesn't respond well. As you see in verse three, he says this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Not the best word. We'll get there. And all of Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Herod, interesting human. This is how Herod came to power. He's a great politician. The end. He's really, really good at being a shrewd diplomat. He's also a great empire builder for Rome. And so it was like, well, the Jews need a king. You look like you could do that. Why don't you be king? And he was like, gladly, it's all I've ever wanted. And as he became older and older, he became increasingly paranoid about people coming against him. He was sure everyone was coming for his throne. In fact, he had his wife and some of his sons killed because he was afraid that they were coming for the throne. They were trying to overthrow him. But the reality is, if Herod were a true believer in Jewish scripture, he would have been elated that the Messiah had come. Here's these wise men from the East, and they're saying, hey, there's a guy that has a legitimate claim. Where is he? And if he believed in Jewish scripture, he would have been like, that's great. No, I've never been happier. (laughs) But he wasn't happy. He was troubled, it says. It's not even a good word. The better word is terrified. He was terrified because someone was coming for his throne, someone who might actually have a legitimate claim to his throne. So then he works with some very trusted people, two groups of people that not only do you hear here, but you hear all throughout the gospel story of Jesus's life. What happened when Rome kind of took over the area and was kind of overseeing the Jewish community in Israel is that two factions, two religious and political factions started to split within the Jewish community. There were those in the Jewish community who wanted to preserve the Hebrew way of life. The laws of Moses, they need to be followed to the letter of the law, okay? They resisted all of the foreign influences that came that wanted to change their way of life or wanted to change their practices. They said no to that. Do you know who we call those people? Pharisees. They're known as Pharisees. The word Pharisee literally means to separate. They were separatists. They were legalistic and they were rigid. 
That's the first group that came out of this. The second group really loved a lot of the ideals of the Greco-Roman culture, specifically the idea of logic and reason kind of taking over superstition. They were very anti-superstition. They didn't like the supernatural, things that couldn't be explained with logic and reason. They completely dismissed. They didn't love that. They embraced a lot of that Greek way of life. They also didn't believe in a direct interpretation of a lot of the laws of Moses. They thought, oh, there should be a little more openness to this idea. They were kind of the liberal sect of this group. Do you know what we call them? Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees, religious groups. And we thought we were the only one that had an issue with that kind of thing in our current context. Come on now. Nothing new under the sun. It's always been this way. We divide ourselves into factions. The two groups did not really get along, but they did have one person in common that they ended up hating a lot, and that was Jesus Christ. And as you read the story of Jesus' life, you find they butt heads quite a bit with Jesus, but they were unified in their mission that he shouldn't be around. So when Herod, or when Matthew says in this moment that Herod and all of Jerusalem was just terrified by this, he's talking about those people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders and the teachers of the day. They both had reasons to hate Jesus. People have been trying to kill Jesus since he first got on this earth, apparently. So here's the situation that we have. We have something very interesting. We have three groups of people just in these first couple of passages. We have foreigners, right, the wise men, who are there to seek the king. We have Herod trying to kill the king. And then we have the religious leaders and teachers basically ignoring the king. They won't ignore him forever. But that's the scenario in which Jesus comes into play. That's what we're dealing with here. A lot of tension and disagreements and infighting that was already happening when Jesus came on the scene. Then in verse 7, it says this, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I'm going to burst a Christmas bubble for many of you because I know a lot of you have nativity scenes in your house, and they're beautiful. Keep them. They're great, but they're not completely accurate. So yes, manger, the whole blah, 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 blah. You've got the shepherds, and that was a real thing. But the wise men didn't show up until about two years after Jesus was born. So he was toddling at this point, like serious tummy time. And they were living in a house. They weren't in a cave anymore. And it wasn't just three wise men. It was like a whole horde of them. Sorry, I know, just ruined your whole day. I Keep the nativity. It's cute. I love it. And, it. and it goes well. It's supposed to be a set. It should function as a set. So don't get rid of your wise men or put them out like two years after the fact. Like, leave them. It's great. Just know Jesus was like two. Okay. So two years later, here they are <laughs> meeting with Jesus. And they meet him. And they're with Mary and Joseph and, of course, living in this house. And that's really wonderful, but this whole situation now, this whole situation is just a dumpster fire for Herod. It's an awful situation for him, okay? And so he's trying to figure out how to fix it. So he, he brings all the leaders together. Okay, so is this a prophecy? What's going on? Great, it is. Great. Then he finds out it's Bethlehem. Great. And then he brings the wise men. He says, okay, now tell me about what time do you think the star? Okay, it's about this time. Okay, that's great. Okay, so you go and worship him. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, he is trying to craft a plan to have firstborn sons killed that are two years, up to two years in age, because he thinks he's got the scoop. I know this and this and this, so I'm going to do this so nobody who's up to two years of age can come for the throne. They're going to come to find what God does to prevent that in verse 10. 
When they saw the star, Magi, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, because he knows he's coming for them, they departed to their own country by another way. So here we are at the end of this story. The star leads them to Jesus, and they're filled with joy. They bring him gifts that are very fitting of a king, gold, a nice precious metal with high value, still is today, frankincense and myrrh, very fitting perfumes for a king. But here's the really interesting thing about this moment. The Magi are foreigners, okay? They're not Jews. They come from a foreign land. They worship foreign gods. They come from a different place. But when they came to Jesus, they instantly recognized he was someone worthy of worship. Instantly. They were like, we're not, the God of the Jews isn't our God. We do things a little bit differently than you. But there is something about this kid. There's something about him. It's so special. It's worthy of worship. And here's why that's significant. It's significant because this moment with these foreigners, the Magi, coming to worship Jesus is the first time we see in Scripture of Gentiles coming to worship Jesus. Gentiles are people who aren't Jewish. Gentiles, that's you and me. It's the first time foreigners or Gentiles or not God's chosen people came to worship him. And it certainly isn't the last And it absolutely verifies other writers, uh, gospel writers, specifically John's gospel in chapter one, where John says he, meaning Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Yep, you're right. It happened just like you said. And then this is what you have. You've got a child born illegitimately, by the way, who is now the king of the Jews, the prince of peace, the almighty God. God is going to legitimize this illegitimate child, and by extension, the rest of the world. And everybody else who tried to hold on to the things that they created, their human power, their human prestige, God is going to deem that illegitimate. So the illegitimate becomes illegitimate, and those who tried to find those things by their own means are illegitimate. And that's the story of hope. That's the story of hope. Jesus said it in other ways when he was an adult in his sermons, the first shall be last, last shall be first, the least of these among us. The people who are illegitimate become legitimate. They get adopted in variations of this theme. You're already seeing right here at the very beginning the seeds of hope. That's what makes this story about Jesus Christ so powerful because when the rest of the world has counted you out, God hasn't. When the rest of the world has said no, God says yes. You're not counted out. You're not illegitimate because you came in through different means or didn't work out exactly the way you think it should. You're not counted out. You're counted in. This is a great story. It's one that I know a lot of you have heard, you grew up with. (laughs) Been hearing your entire lives, even if you only come to church a couple times a year, it's something you've heard at some point. And you would probably think to yourself, oh yes, great story, Phil good TED Talk. This should give us some hope, right? It should give us some hope. But then there's the reality of life. And the reality of life is that people suffer and die every day, every day. And not everyone enjoys the blessing of health or happiness in this life. People will disappoint you over and over and over and over again. Your expectations are going to go unmet all the time, all the time. 
That's the real world we live in. That is the world we live in right now. But I think that's just it when we try to unlock this key to hope. The struggle with hope comes with our human expectations that we put on hope. That's where the struggle is with the human expectations. Because if you say to yourself, I will only be hopeful if the following thing happens. I need God to heal me. I need my business to be successful. I need the economy to do this. Then you're always going to be disappointed. Always. Those are human things. Those are things that you're trying to generate by your own power, by your own might, by your own will. You can't will yourself to hope. It's a God thing. It's a God thing. Basically what we try to do and this is very true for all of us in, in our ebb and flow of life. We try to say, if I were God, if I were God, if I were God, this is how I would handle things. And it would be awesome. I would meet all of humanity's expectations all the time. So it would just be easy for everyone to have faith in me and to have hope and believe. That's what I would do. That's a good plan, right? But you're not God. Neither am I. The prophet Isaiah said it best, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So when your expectations aren't met and you have this tendency to just feel completely hopeless, do you know what we do? We become like children. We start to lump everything and everyone into the same two categories our kids do, always and never. Everything just becomes an absolute. All Christians are hypocrites. All men are scum. All women are manipulators. Rich people are greedy. Poor people are lazy. This generation is the worst. The government is broken. Everyone's out to get you, so trust no one. God doesn't care about you or your suffering, right? So what do we do? Because I still feel discouraged and desperate. What do we do with all of that? Let me tell you what we do. We stuff it, just stuff it down, compartmentalize it, put it in a box, put a dollar in the dollar jar and call it good. Stuff it down. No, just kidding. Don't, that's the worst advice ever. Don't do that. Therapy is very important. <clears throat> it's not good. This is what we really do with it. You expose it to the light. You take the things that are in darkness and you bring them into the light where God is. All of those feelings that are allowed to live in the shadows of our lives, they become a breeding ground for far worse emotions and behaviors and it, and it makes us suspicious of everyone and everything. Even if those suspicions are completely unwarranted, bring them into the light because God's not afraid of the dark. He doesn't want you to be either. Bring them into the light, the place where God lives. Do you know what we call this? This is the fancy word, confession. <laughs> we call it confession. It's about talking to God about our brokenness. And this brokenness isn't always sin-related. I think sometimes we equate brokenness with sin. It doesn't have to be. It can just be like, things are not great. I, I'm struggling to come up for air. I'm treading water. That's brokenness. I'm hurting. I'm afraid. I'm alone. Brokenness. All of it. Confess it. Bring it into the light. Expose it to the light of God and just see what happens. 
After we expose and confess, we have to do this thing that I know probably it's kind of church ease that you hear. If you want real hope, you have to do this thing that we call humbling ourselves. And humbling ourselves before God doesn't mean apologizing for being good at something or thinking less of yourselves. It actually means agreeing with God about who he says you are and who he says he is. That's what it means. So let me just give you a 30,000 foot view of who God says that you are. He says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, he says that you were made in the image of the creator. He says that he made you and he thought it was good. Not just good, but very good. You're beautifully made, but you're also beautifully broken because of sin. You're a sinner. That's a thing. But that's okay because God has a plan. He sent his one and only son to fix that whole problem. So you also are a human with a choice. You get to choose to be restored by the power of Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is who he says he is. Do you agree? Humble yourself. After you've done that, you you humble yourself and you tell the truth about your disappointments and your distrust. Do you know what you have? Nothing. (laughs) But Christ. Nothing but Christ. Because at that point, you've stripped away all of your human ability to fix your own problems. You've stripped away everything. You told the truth about yourself and where you're at, and you have nothing but Christ. So then you get to move into this really cool place where you get to be dependent on him for everything. Every good and perfect gift, every glimmer of hope and grace that you might need just to make it to tomorrow, you're not going to be able to do on your own, but God can. This is the difference between manufactured hope and supernatural hope. Only a God can put hope where there is no hope. Only a God makes a way where there's no way. That's why we call him the way maker. Only a God can do that. I want to take you back to the 400 years of just nothing. You're a Jewish person living in those 400 years, and you've heard about this promise. But let's say this time, God comes to you in a dream, and he says, I've got a plan. It's a really good plan. But here's the deal. You're not going to experience it in your lifetime. Is he still God? Can he be? Or is it not enough? I don't understand what God is doing most of the time in our world, in our country, in our cities, in our churches. But I do know this, real hope comes from a dependency on Christ, not on ourselves. It's beyond you. It's beyond your ability to manufacture it. You can't. You can't possibly. You're not strong enough, but God is. I want to leave you with a passage of scripture from the Old Testament book of Psalms. This passage is really great because the deeper meaning behind it is this idea that you can't rely on each other or mankind to save us, that it's going to have to be a God. And what I'm going to ask you to do wherever you are, if you're at home or here in the room, just close your eyes, just listen. I'm going to read it for you. I want this to soak and permeate and be something that maybe, just maybe, if you take it to heart, might bring you some of that supernatural hope that we're talking about. In Psalm 121, it says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. The hillside. <laughs> That's like a place of refuge. If you were in a valley and the valley flooded, you would move to the hills, right? You'd head for the hills to keep yourself safe. But in this passage of scripture, the writer looks to the hills and he doesn't find his help in the hills. He finds his help in the one who made the hills. Do you hear the difference? He finds it in the one who made the hills. The hill doesn't save me. The one who made the hill is my refuge and my strength. We have to learn to put our hope and our confidence and our faith and our trust in God. Not anything, not anyone. They're not enough. Nothing in this world is enough. And this is what that means. When things look bleakest, we get to trust that God will deliver in his time, in his way. So that means if it never happens in your life and you spend the rest of this life struggling and there's nothing else, you will always have Christ. You always have Christ. And not only does that make you loved and blessed, frankly, it makes you divinely favored for what other creature that God created can boast such a claim. I want to pray, but before I pray, I'm going to leave a time for it to be quiet. And I want you to take this time as an opportunity to confess, <laughs> to tell God the truth about yourself in your life. He already knows. Why don't you take those parts of you that are living in the darkness and bring them to light? The brokenness, the hurt, the disappointment, the distrust, let's move them into the light in a place where God can work and deal with them. I want us to have time to do that. And then I will pray at the end. This is your time with God, your God, your Savior, your Jesus, the one that gives you that hope, that hope that nobody on this stage can bring you, nobody in your life, the people who love you the most, they'll always disappoint, but God never will. He never fails. So take the time to cry out to him, to confess to him the brokenness. Let's pray together. Great God, I... I know you're on the move, even as I speak. Thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. God, some of us need just a, an extra dose of some of that supernatural hope. God, thank you for making a way when we can't possibly see a way out of our situation. Thank you for making it possible. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ because without him, we'd have nobody to depend on. Thank you for giving us this time of year where we get to remember just how wonderful, and powerful, and good you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.